down those cards. Cards mean different things at different times. Do you know anything about tarot cards? Oh, Gather around, children. Listen to the mystics. <laughs> Journey. Podcast. I'm no mystic. Welcome to the Mystic Ghoul's Journey Podcast. I'm Anna, and this is Ruth. Howdy! This is an occult history podcast. Today, we're taking a deep dive into satanic feminism some more. Part Woo. two. So, let's jump on in. Okay. You think my howdy is good? Should that be my tag for this podcast? I think it has to be. I mean, okay. at least this season. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so, anyways, this week we're going to dive into a bit more about satanic feminism and specifically look at some of the books that kind of came out in, like, other pieces of art that, helped, that came out that helped empower women to start challenging traditional gender roles at the time. Last week, we talked about feminism and Satanism and talked a bit about Helena Blavatsky, who was the woman who started to give shape to Satanic feminism back then. In 1888, a pretty influential book came out called The Secret Doctrine by Blavatsky, and she talked about how the serpent, you know, like the one in the Garden of Eden, was actually a good guy kind of helping us out. And this was kind of a rebellion against the traditional idea that the serpent was evil, at the time, people often used the story from Genesis 3 to keep women out of important religious roles. And Blavatsky, who was a female religious leader herself, was all about changing that. Some folks who were into free thinking also liked this idea. In 1895, a book called The Women's Bible came out. It was a big feminist project, and it was the first time people tried to tackle the Bible from a feminist perspective. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a famous suffragette, was one of the main editors, and she was a fan of Blavatsky's ideas. In this book, they talked about how Satan could be seen as a good guy, kind of like Socrates or Plato, and they thought Eve was pretty darn smart for listening to the serpent. The book highlighted how the traditional reading of this story was used to keep women down. Instead, they preferred an esoteric understanding of the fall which was a more feminist-friendly way of looking at things. Yep. P.S. If you're going to read or get into the woman's Bible, just a heads up, it's a collection of essays and commentaries on the Bible. It's not like a brand new Bible or like secret texts from women. <laughs> so in the 1880s, the Church of England released a revised version of the Bible, and Stanton was not pleased that they didn't include any work from a female Bible translator named Julia Evelina Smith. So, Elizabeth rounded up some women to be on this revising committee, and they wanted to show how the Bible was biased against women, and that it wasn't divine will that kept women down, but that it was the human desire to dominate. And so oh. that's where we, yeah, that's where we get this, uh, this collection of essays that are commentating on the Bible and its perspective. Okay, so now that we kind of have an overview of what we discussed last week and kind of an up to date on what you know the idea of satanic <laughs> feminism is so in the material that falls under satanic feminism what keeps popping up well <laughs> let's break it down you've got this main theme of eve teaming up with the serpent in the garden of eden but with a twist making it a good thing this story in a way that made it clear that eve wanted equality with adam and that's why she took a bite of that forbidden fruit offered by the serpent now, the heavy deconstruction of Genesis 3, where all of this Eden drama went down, really goes down in Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine from 1888 and The Woman's Bible from 1895. Before these works hit the scene, some women were already saying, 
hey, Eve's hunger for knowledge isn't a bad thing. <laughs> they argued this because some men were trying to use this Bible story to keep women out of higher education. They also said that serpent wasn't all bad either. And in the late 1800s, Genesis 3 was still being used to justify some not so great stuff, like doctors refusing to ease women's childbirth pains or telling women to obey their husbands and keep quiet in church. Feminists had been attacking this chapter since the 1860s, and some had already started seeing the serpent in a more positive light, mainly because it messed with the idea that Eve was the first sinner. Eve's desire for knowledge was something that a lot of women could relate to. Oh yeah. So I went back and read this passage. Now I have too much background knowledge to be completely unbiased, obviously. <laughs> but when I went back and read this, I was like, oh, I wouldn't, no one would know that the serpent was Satan because he's not mentioned at all. And he, I'm going to, mm, okay, I do want to read just a portion of it. Yeah, let's do it. I think that's a good source. Yeah. So let's start. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There's like another half of this that goes on when God finds them and is like, how do you know you're naked? How do you know what that <laughs> is? I curse you. And then he curses them. Jeez. Um, but when you read that passage... I'd like you to keep in mind that if the knowledge of good and evil comes from the tree, but Eve had not yet eaten it when the serpent was talking to her, how would she know that the serpent is being evil? Right. Like, like I, like you, you're essentially going, hey, God told me not to eat that thing. And you're like, okay, but Eve and Adam at this point are very naive. They don't know what good and evil is. They probably don't understand the concept of deception or lying. So, of course, Eve is going to trust these animals that God created, including the serpent. And you're just like, right. why would God hold Eve and Adam accountable for a thing that he, like, should have known if he was really an all-knowing God? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. of course I made them trusting. So, really, I need to be talking to the serpent about lying over here. Right, exactly. And, like, yeah. when you take this and you read it and your point is fantastic, it's funny that they call this whole thing satanic feminism because, really... Uh -huh that point of view should just be accepted as what it is. We should be reading the text as it is without our biases and accepting that as it is. It, it shouldn't have to be associated with sat Satanism at all. But even people back then were not accepting of that. You know, people even now aren't accepting of that reading of the thing. They're still trying to make Eve into this evil thing that didn't evil work and seduce sat Adam into it when it's not true. Right. So that no. kind of just caused all these people to go to the extremes and kind of, you know, to prove their point, And that's kind of how we get satanic feminism out of it. So Blavatsky had to know that Genesis 3 was often used to keep the patriarchy going strong. Her alternative take on the serpent as the savior, even though it didn't focus on Eve, totally fits with this tradition of feminist subversion. 
Her influence likely made its way into the woman's Bible, since some of those involved were also into theosophy. There was a lot of crossover there. Oh, yeah. You can see similar vibes in, like, this woman Susan E. Gay's feminist arguments, where she takes inspiration from Blavatsky's ideas about the fall and how men were using Genesis 3 for their political gain. So, another thing that keeps popping up that is kind of super interesting to me is this, like, motif of the witch. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps on popping up. It's kind of like the story of Eve giving into temptation. They're both stories used to explain women's supposed connection to Satan. The witch and Eve are both supposedly connected to Satan. Mm. And you can see strong, powerful ladies in Gothic novels by people like Beckford and Lewis who are pretty much witches. And back in the late 1700s, these novels helped make the witch figure out to be the self-reliant, dominant woman who was in charge while the guys were playing catch-up. And that idea had a lot of appeal for many feminists. Oh, yeah. I started to dig a little more into just, like, in general gothic literature. Um, And my impression is that this genre is where authors were really allowed to write women in a way that falls outside of what society saw as proper. Um, There were usually two extremes. Um, You'll probably recognize some of them if you think of things like Dracula and Frankenstein. On one end, we have the very meek and innocent and pure female characters who, like, can do no wrong. But then we have the opposite end where we have more sinister, predatory women who would wield their sexuality or had access to supernatural powers. So they, you know, we had suddenly these versions of women that weren't just like proper in society, but they were strong and they gained that strength by opposing society. So you can (laughs) see how like it becomes a very strong thematic across the board. Um, And this particular genre uh gothic literature there were actually also quite a few female authors that wrote in this genre too because it allowed them to write characters who could grapple with issues in society like anxiety their futures having to be dependent on men for their future um where if you wrote in another genre you really weren't allowed to be as overt and comment on that yeah mary shelley great example yeah Uh, Yeah, so then came the 1800s, and witches started to be seen as women who were grabbing power from the guys. For example, there were these set of paintings by Byrne Jones, where Vivian is swiping Merlin's spellbook. Super cool (laughs) paintings. It is really cool. Yeah, if you're curious, the painting, there's one in particular called The Beguiling of Merlin. And And the scene is inspired by this poetic retelling of Vivian and Merlin. And I think the story is called Idyllis of the King which is about Vivian, King Mark of Cornwall's lover. And King Mark sends Vivian to Camelot, where she pretends to fall in love with Merlin so she can gain access to his secrets. Um, and so this painting is actually like, it. it's like the scene where Merlin is like officially like, I think he's like trapped or he's like given in and like given her his spell book. Um, but we've talked a bit about romanticism. And so this painting falls within that framework within romanticism so we have like romanticism and gothic literature where people are starting to be more individual they're starting to explore their anxiety and fears around what's happening in society um so it's like it's a everything is merging together at this point we have art and literature and politics that are all affecting this particular wave of feminism yeah for sure and uh one other example of that is michelet's book la sosaurier I'm not saying that right, but we're going to roll with it. It's French. We don't know how to say that. (laughs) No. 
Uh, it's from 1862, and it reimagined historical witchcraft as a form of rebellion by the underdogs. And part of this rebellion included feminist protest. Yeah, I was when I looked into this, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So while Michelet's book is now largely regarded as inaccurate when it comes to the history of witchcraft specifically, it had a very important impact because he was one of the first people to write from a sympathetic point of view towards witches, witchcraft, and women, and peasants even. So it offered this new perspective, one that explored why women would be motivated to become witches. And in general, he had a very strong emphasis on the idea that history should be concentrated on the people, the commoners, rather than limited to just portraying political leaders and institutions' point of view, because that is not the common point of view, which is a very uh, important thing, I think, to take away from this when we're talking about history. We always talk about, like, whoever's in charge gets to write history. Right. And so Michelet's point of view was one that was very new for its time, and it had that lasting impact where people were like, oh, you're right. We should probably look at the common experience of the multitudes rather than just, like, the kings. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then we have Matilda Jocelyn Gage and Charles Leland. They were a couple of writers, both Uh super involved in, like, suffragette movement, and uh, Charles Leland was, like, a humorist. But they took these ideas further, and Gage especially made the feminist connection super clear. She was all about celebrating the witch, who she saw as kind of an ancestor to the suffragettes. It's worth mentioning that Gage didn't brush off the whole Satanism thing that Michelet linked to witches, She actually played it up and sharpened the feminist side of things. Those supposed black masses that the witches were said to have had became a symbolic way to stick it to the patriarchal power, both on earth and up in the heavens. This is a way of taking history and using it for some serious political purposes. She threw in a bit of theosophy, too, since she was a big, big fan of Blavatsky. And then we have George Edgerton which is actually a pen name used by the writer Mary Chevalita Bright. And they use the witch as a metaphor for the modern new woman. And the thing is, anti-feminists also jumped on this witch figure, but they used it to try and trash the reputation of women (laughs) fighting for equal rights. There's like an insane story behind this, like connecting witches to suffragettes and like hysteria. We'll get into that, I think, in a couple of weeks here. I'm super excited to talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> but medical, sci- medical science had declared that witches were basically hysterics, and since feminists were getting all called hysterical and compared to witches, the three got all mixed up. Okay, yeah, that's that would put a real damper on the rebellious spirit of the witch classic sexist view of women that are hysterical when they're just like stating what's actually happening in the world and what's going on. <laughs> they're like, oh no, yeah. the, I don't want to deal with your reality. You must be crazy. Um, I think this is actually uh, an interesting, probably an interesting place to bring up what is happening here. We have a modern version of this, this idea of like the witch is being used one way, then the opposite side takes it back. The term snowflake. (laughs) Right, exactly. It was originally used to describe conservatives Mm -hmm. and, and like listing out all that. And then conservatives started to use it and throw it back at liberals, um, Liberals don't really take offense to it. <laughs> right. The conservatives are the ones who take offense to it, which is why they were called the snowflakes. Mm-hmm. But that's a kind of, a, this is like kind of a modern version of what is happening here where it's like, hey, I'm a witch because like I'm fighting for X, Y, and Z. And then they're like, haha, witches are hysterical. And it's just like, <laughs> the witches are like, man, I mean, 
nah, I'm still going to keep fighting. <laughs> right. Like, you can't you can't make this. You can't dampen my spirits. Yeah, this whole thing is just discourse and counter discourse. Discourse. <laughs> yes, as Ruth taught us earlier in the previous yeah. episode on this. So funny. But so like not everything was down with this sort of thing. Gage, for one, was all about keeping her ancestor witches looking spotless. They had defied the feudal lords, the bigwigs in the sky, and had given patriarchy a good telling off with those black masses. And they weren't about to be dragged through the mud by folks conflating them with feminists. So, you know, Gage <laughs> wanted to separate the two. And it's rightfully yeah. so. It's not a fair comparison to be, yeah. you know, <laughs> combining wishes with suffragettes. So let's answer the question, who were the people getting into this satanic feminist stuff? Well, they weren't your everyday folks, that's for sure. Most <laughs> yeah. of them came from the middle or upper class and were pretty darn educated. This satanic feminism stuff isn't exactly a walk in the park. It's all about theology, history, and like pretty complex literature and like art knowledge. Uh -huh. To dive into it, you needed to have a super solid educational background. But here's the thing. Back in the 1800s, getting that kind of a education was usually reserved for the upper crust of society. We're not talking about working class heroes here. Instead, we've got mostly nobility a lot of times. Um, yeah, which, you know, I think we all agree we could use more of these folks in positions of like social, financial and political power using their station to turn the tides in favor of the oppressed. Uh, yes, for sure. That's definitely true. Since satanic feminism had some pretty revolutionary ideas about women's roles in society, even if they were mostly focused on the individual satanic feminists themselves, it wasn't exactly something that folks in positions of power were going to support. They usually came from backgrounds like radical free thinkers, agitators, or bohemian artists and authors. And hey, many of them had like the kind of wealth that made them pretty much untouchable when stirring the pot. That's Blavatsky the key. herself was like nobility, yeah. so she had no no issues being who she, whoever she wanted to be in, in uh -huh. society. Oh, and there's also one more thing. They were women, obviously, and in those days, women didn't exactly have much political clout, especially when compared to men. Like we said, this whole thing is happening, and it's, it's also getting intertwined with the suffragettes at the time, so uh -huh. it's really during a time when we were fighting for our rights. And there were some women with a lot of influence, but the satanic feminists were usually a different story. They were part of what this guy, Bruce Lincoln, Lincoln calls the marginal intelligentsia. Yeah, I had to look this up because I was like, what, is, what does that mean? Um, maybe some smarter uh, listeners can already tell what it means by the words. But this concept refers to individuals or groups who exist on the fringes of established religious or intellectual traditions and they operate outside of like the mainstream and engage with religious or intellectual ideas in an alternative or unconventional way. Yeah, for sure. So suffragettes like Matilda Jocelyn Gage and the crew behind the Women's Bible were shut out of politics because they were women. And they so they turned to counter discourse as a way to challenge the system. Some of them didn't want to get super political for various reasons, even though they knew that their writings had political consequences. But let's talk about temperament. A lot of these folks were big-time individualists. That connection between satanic discourse and individualism goes all the way back. And many of them loved making a statement through their bold fashion choices and out-there costumes. But not all of them followed this hardline individualist path. Take the American suffragettes behind the woman's Bible, for example. 
they weren't as headstrong about individualism and their satanic feminism wasn't as clear-cut as some. But here's the common thread. They loved stirring the pot and getting into some feisty debates. <laughs> Politically, satanic feminists were always in the progressive camp in some way. They weren't big fans of what the Christian churches were saying about women. Besides that, they mostly hung out on the outer edges of the, sp of the political spectrum. Some of them were all about revolution and shaking off the yoke of class oppression, but for the most part, they were militant individualists who didn't really have the people in mind. What's for sure, though, is that all of these satanic feminists believed that organized Christianity was a major roadblock to women's individual or collective freedom. That's why they hitched their wagon to Satan. He was like their symbolic ally in this battle. Rad. <laughs> Super rad. Super rad. So if I'm going to try and kind of like summarize this. Uh, satanic feminism is not actually a formalized movement. Like, I don't think that this particular phrase was actually really used at the time. Satanism right. was used at the time. Feminism was used at the time. But it's not It's not like a formal movement that people were waving around banners saying, I'm a satanic feminist. Uh, it also, hopefully everybody understands by now, does not include worship of Satan right. in any way. It's not like we're replacing God with Satan. Satanic feminism, instead, it encompasses a period of feminism where the retelling of Genesis 3 reinterprets Satan as this ally to women's empowerment and uses Satan as a symbol of knowledge, autonomy, and liberation. And this new perspective brought light to how Christianity was often used to keep women oppressed and remove rights from folks. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's just it's like, like a, a collection of works that historians nowadays have all agreed mm -hmm. that it's a period of time known as satanic feminism. Yep. It's like how we look back and can see romantic satanism in the romantic period and that sort of oh, thing. Yeah. Yes. It's just like a cool little piece of history that's like kind of fun. It is. I don't know. I thought it was I mean, great. I like it. I think there's like a lot of modern interpretations of Satan now in general. Like I think there's there's the show of Supernatural. So in like the first five seasons, when Lucifer comes back, like his thing was like, no, I loved God the most. And so right. he was willing to do things that like other angels were willing to do. And then now we have like campy things. Like I think it's, um, it's I think it's just called Lucifer. Is it the show yeah. on Netflix? It's like yeah. just the show that's called Lucifer. Who's like, oh, I'm just like hanging out on earth, being a party boy. Cause I'm bored. <laughs> party boy. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of retellings of Satan and Lucifer. But this is one that, like, very much opened up the gateway for people to start looking at Christianity critically, as well as any other kind of system that was like, for oh, sure. wow, we're really only viewing this from one particular point of view, and we're not taking into account everybody else's point of view who's being affected by it. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool little piece of history to dive into, that's for sure. It is. Awesome. Well, hey, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you're a fa fan of the podcast, we need you to do this so we can find new fans. <laughs> Tell Please. your friends. Follow us on all socials. Our handles are Sweet Death Inc. and Mystic Pool Tarot on all platforms. See you later.